0: two, three. Welcome to (laughs) There, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna stay recording. Welcome Welcome to a Florida Florida thing. thing. I'm your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Gramelle. On today's podcast, we're gonna be talking about Florida food. Eating it, serving it, and writing about it.
1: I like the eating part.
0: In the first segment, we're going to be talking about eating, specifically Florida food. We're going to be talking about our Aunt Annie's alligators and what they ate. And then we're also going to be talking about white trash food. Okie dokie. In the second segment, we're going to be talking to my mom, your daughter, about what it's been like to serve food in Florida. One of the reasons we wanted to highlight her, besides the fact that she's amazing, during COVID, I haven't really seen a lot of stories from the perspective and the voice of servers. And then in our third segment, we are going to be talking to author, editor, and food journalist, Janet Keeler. We're going to be talking about what she's been eating in quarantine, what Florida food is, because we know what it was, but not what it is. And then she's going to be talking to us about writing about Florida food and some really big food stories that are on her radar.
1: She'll tell us some neat things I'm sure that we don't know. Or
0: maybe we'll tell her some neat things she doesn't know. I mean, you always telling us things. In this segment, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite topics, Florida food. Before we get this underway, I wanted to read something to you. Actually, it's something you wrote. So earlier in the summer, before we were even... The podcast was even a glimmer in our eye. I received a text from your number. It says, it's great having Ty here. He helps with the chores, especially Roxy. He eats all the time. I'm jealous, but I put out a ham to thaw in the refrigerator. That should keep him a few days. (laughs) He's not eating sugar, just everything else. But at least my Magnum bars are safe. Do you remember writing this text? Did you mean to send it to me?
1: Yeah, it was the truth.
0: Oh, really? Were you putting me on notice that I'm eating too much?
1: (laughs) No, have I ever told you you can have that?
0: So you think a ham can keep me a few days? Yeah. If you're lucky.
1: Yeah. Maybe you could be gone in a 24-hour period, but you do sleep.
0: (laughs) I don't eat while I'm sleeping. No, you don't. (laughs) that's the one time apparently that i'm not eating
1: to the kitchen okay
0: we can just leave it out i don't eat at night (laughs) anyway let's get into the segment there have been a lot of good home cooks in our family i didn't necessarily pick up that trait why don't you talk to us about what you ate growing up in florida
1: I grew up eating fish a lot because my Uncle Tommy went fishing all the time and his family could only consume a certain amount and he shared them with everybody. And so Daddy would clean them and Mama would cook them and my brother and I would eat the tail. What I grew up eating was mullet. Cause
0: Which is huge in this area, the Bay fr- area.
1: It's a freshwater fish. The tail doesn't have bones in it. And that's why Mama started us with that. And then she made hush puppies from heaven. She made it in a cornmeal batter, and we always had baked beans, grits, and coleslaw. Now, that was what you were supposed to have, and of course, iced tea, which is the house wine of the South. Back then, and I kind of think now, it was because the stretch, the meat, she would put green peppers, onions, and celery in almost anything. Spaghetti sauce, meatloaf, potato salad, you name it, she added those things to it. Of course, not banana pudding, but Sundays were just sight to behold after how she did all of that. And we went to Sunday school and church religiously, <laughs> and she made the best fried chicken. Colonel Sanders just don't hold a candle to her. My daddy usually made the roast, and then she always made a wonderful dessert. Then we would have dessert during the week up until about, about Tuesday night. It was We had already consumed it all. Growing up, we went to Lake Butler, which is called Lake Tarpon now. And my aunts and mama would all bring the most delicious food you can imagine and put them together. They would bring all their best. Mama was known for her dumplings. And my aunts, oh my goodness, one of my aunts was the head baker at the school cafeteria. Aunt Luella was known for her coleslaw. Aunt Leo was known for her desserts. Aunt Lorraine was known for squash casserole and we usually had fried chicken.
0: I spent a lot of time with granny and you when I was younger because mom was working as a waitress so she had to be up early so I spent a lot of nights there and I just remember granny cooking all the time and telling me all these stories about living on the farm and she was such a sweet person. I mean I know a lot of people think that no sweet people but she was a sweet person out of the sweet people.
1: Right. She was number one sweet person.
0: Church lady. Everybody liked her. Super friendly. No one ever had a A bad bad
1: word to say about
0: Granny Lula. And I I make that joke. It was kind of
1: a hard act
0: to follow. Right. And I kind of make that joke because people wouldn't be able to say that about me. Or me. (laughs) Which is not necessarily a bad thing. Right. I've just never known anyone like her that unanimously everyone couldn't say anything bad about. One of my favorite stories that I remember granny telling me is that she used to have to chop the heads off the chicken back in the day before they were plucked and then fried.
1: And I remember smelling scorched feathers because after she did all that she would boil them and that is not a pleasant aroma. But the frying of the actual results of all that was a heavenly scent.
0: (laughs) That must have been nice for her when she didn't have to kill the chickens and she could just buy the chicken at the store. I can't imagine her chopping off a chicken head. But also I can because she did what she had to do. She never. she worked. Her
1: mother died when she was a young 16 year old. She had brothers at home and a dad. And she took over being the mistress of the home.
0: Tell them how her mom died. This is a famous true, true family true story.
1: My mom was coming home from the Pinehouse County Fair that was always held in Largo for like 30 years at least. Her mom and dad was ahead of her. And she was talking with a friend behind. And she they weren't walking as fast. And Bertha would turn around and say, come on, Lula. And she got hit by a car. And it was a hit and run. And she got her leg just mangled. You got to realize this was 80, 90 years ago. They never found the person. They had their suspicions, but nothing ever panned out, and they didn't find who did this. But about four months after the accident, they had to amputate her leg, and she died of uh, infection that set in. That's when uh, Mama took over cooking and cleaning and and going to school and all like that. And her father and brothers were all helping with the farm. And they got up early and they had a big breakfast and a big lunch and a big dinner. There was three of the uh, boys. And she told me that sometimes she felt responsible for what happened to her mother because she felt like she might have been looking back at Mom and saying, hurry up, Lula.
0: And that must have been really traumatizing for her to have her mom die that way. And then she always felt somewhat responsible for it.
1: Because my mother had a gift of gab. I don't know where, you know, that would come from. But and so she got, I don't know. Why did my grandpa let her walk on the outside of the road?
0: Well, I just can't believe it happened in broad daylight and nobody stopped or anything like that.
1: And, you know, it was a small town. Everybody, everybody. And so, yeah. And,
0: like, how could they not find the car?
1: And, I mean, my uncles had an attitude. They were wonderful, but nobody pushed them around. How they never found out about it.
0: Because I would think, too, not that many people had cars. Right. Because they were
1: walking home from the fair, which meant they did not have, they probably had some type of tractor, but they didn't have a car.
0: And then Granny started to work in the cafeteria. That was
1: she started the year I started to kindergarten, and all the way up until I would say I uh, was out of school because I used to date one of the boys that was on her bus. She, oh, she also became a school bus driver, but she could do both. She would drive to a school, stop, work in the cafeteria. That started more like after my dad died, and she needed more money than just the cafeteria. So she did both.
0: I know. I wish I would have been able to talk to her more about working in the cafeteria because I feel like that's such a big job, cooking that much food every day for the kids.
1: It's the hardest job I ever had. I kept a job in the cafeteria for three months.
0: What kind of food were they serving back in the day?
1: Well, they had a reputation countywide for the peanut butter cookies they made. And if I had a nickel for every time I was asked, did I have the recipe for those peanut butter cookies, I would probably be on the Riviera now. and not in my dining room. And back then, you always had either tuna or macaroni and cheese on Fridays.
0: What kind of meat were they serving?
1: Oh, John Marzetti, which is macaroni and cheese with hamburger on top. They must have put paprika in a sauce and had that over the top. And then they had, it was way before the days of fish sticks, but they did have some kind of fish once in a while.
0: Well, I just know Granny was such a good cook. I bet like those meals were pretty awesome.
1: I couldn't believe it when my children started to elementary school and I told them they're going to have the best food ever. And they would come home and I'd say, how was the food? And they would complain how horrible it was. Because I figured their experience with the cafeteria food was going to be the same as mine. And it wasn't and never was. Back then, they could bring food home, leftover food. There was not the the rules and regulations now. So probably at least two nights a week, we had leftovers from the school cafeteria. And she'd bring them home in these great big tin cans, probably five or ten pound things. Can I talk about it any? Sure. And Annie used to get the scraps and put them in cans and take them home and feed her dogs and her alligators. And she would feed probably the dogs first. Well, she'd feed her family first. And then she would go out to the end of her little wooden pier. There was a big old stick hanging at both ends. And she would hit these cans up against those boards. And here would come usually just one or two alligators. And she would throw the contents of those things into the water. And they would eat and have a good time and leave. And she had three boys and my brother that swam in her pond, which later became a lake because it got bigger and bigger. They never, ever bothered anybody. And they never bothered the dogs. And I'd go down and visit with my Aunt Annie because we only lived about half a block from her. And it would be dark before I got done talking and I would leave to go home. She'd say, now Margie, just shuffle your feet and I'll scare the alligators and you won't even see them. And I'd say, I don't think so, Ann-Annie. And she'd say, Frank, come walk out with Margie. So alligators were a part of Ann-Annie's life and there was never a bad scene. And they tell you, do not feed alligators. But I think since she did them every night, seven days a week, basically at the same time, and they were wonderful cafeteria leftovers. They were content, and they didn't have to be hungry. They were probably never hungry. I never swam in the the (laughs) pond, and neither did her one and only daughter, Sissy. We didn't want that pond water in our hair. (laughs) I didn't want the squishy dirt in my feet, and I was not into sharing my swimming space with alligators.
0: A lot of people might not be able to readily recognize what Florida food is. What is Florida food to you, someone who has lived in Florida their whole life?
1: Well, it's fish, and I love swamp cabbage.
0: What is that for those who don't know?
1: Swamp cabbage is cabbage, and they have a leaf of cabbage, and then they put uh, a helping of some type of sherbet, usually green, and then peanuts on top of it, and then they cover the top of it with a bunch of shredded. Cabbage and then that all melts. It's more of a dessert, and you can only get these at places like Homosassa. I went through a streak that for probably 15 years, whenever we went out, about every other time we would go to some place that had it, and it was always a fish place that would have it. Turkey and dressing, my mother's dressing, and all my aunts were nothing like people that were coming from the north. They had stuffing. They didn't have dressing. And my mother utilized fruit a lot. She would have peach turnovers and blueberry cobbler. They were good, good, good. She used peaches a lot in her dessert. My mother made hoe cake, which I think basically is the same batter you use for biscuits. But you fry it in a cast iron skillet and you turn it like a pancake. But it's about an inch thick. Whole cake when it was left over became a part of dessert that you would put a fruit on top of, or you would dip your whole cake into the fruit juice that cooked out.
0: Because there were a lot of orange groves. Yes. Back then.
1: We had oranges a lot. My mother made a great ambrosia and mother made apple salad. Back then you you had more fruit and vegetables and legumes than actual meat. Meat was a specialty.
0: And like you were saying, they had to make the meat go far. They had to do little tricks because they didn't necessarily have the money to buy as much meat as they wanted or they were getting stuff off the farm. Yes. And this is in our part of Florida, which is central. It's in the middle of the state on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. The farther south you go, there's more Cuban influence, Caribbean. There's a whole different cuisine there. So, you know, I think each part of the state has its own kind of thing. So this is where we grew up and what you grew up eating.
1: So eating was a event and we always, everybody had to be there for a meal. And that's when the you fellowshiped. And if nothing else, we ended a meal with some kind of bread and syrup. She made biscuits. She made cornbread. She made corn muffins. Daddy liked to have a little sweet at the end of his meal. And my mother did too, but then she'd have to have a little meat or something to take away the sweet taste. And then she'd have to have a little more sweet. It was kind of cute. Oh, she did that. Oh, this is one of the most important things. When my mother had any leftover bread, period, and if we didn't eat it that way, she would make what we called egg bread. And nowadays it's known as French toast. Bread, yes. And uh but it, we mama would make it out of any leftover bread. Egg bread became bread pudding on the weekends. What I make it out of mostly is when we go out to eat and they serve bread. And we don't eat all the bread. Sometimes we don't eat any of it. And I take it home and I make the egg bread out of it. And my boys know all about egg bread.
0: One of the dishes that I remember granny making and that you make that's really simple, but that I really like is the tomatoes, the saltines, and the mayonnaise.
1: That's called cracker salad.
0: I was going to a potluck one day and I was talking about making this because I really like it. It's really good. And one of my friends, I was talking about it and she called that white trash food.
1: There's white trash and there's poor white trash. And white trash is fine. That's poor, but honest and clean people. Poor white trash is richer people that just have bad manners. It's okay to be called white trash.
0: It caught me off guard because it was something that I grew up eating, but also that it's just really good. So who cares?
1: Yeah, yeah. there's hardly ever any leftover cracker salad, fresh tomatoes and uh, saltine crackers, Some people use Ritz crackers and mayonnaise. I don't like
0: it that way. I like the
1: saltines, period. And you crush the saltines at the last minute where they don't get soggy. I slice my tomatoes, you just kind of cut them up in chunks, over a paper towel where a lot of the juice runs out of it. That's kind of important. That's the only thing you have to be exact about.
0: That story just sticks out to me because it was one of the first times that I was really thinking about, oh, you could like a dish and someone could have some kind of weird stigma about it being white trash or some kind of class-based thing with the food. And I ended up not making the dish for the potluck, but I really wish that I would have now. I was in a different place back then. Now I would have.
1: Yeah, you're not supposed to let people's feelings about something interfere with how you feel it. That came from my Aunt Mary, mom's one and only sister. And I think that was a way to... Uh, stretch a meal they would say stretch a meal or stretch the meat is farmers usually always had tomatoes and after a certain decade you always had mayonnaise in the refrigerator and it was a great way to use up maybe older salting crackers she also <laughs> would take cottage cheese and sprinkle it with a package of jello that was a staple and she almost always had those fixins as she called them around
0: I know we could talk about food all day. Yes. Is there anything else you'd like to end on? Any thoughts?
1: I loved Christmas time and the special food we had. Daddy, once a year, would buy one of these great big huge peppermint sticks. And it, he made Christmas so much fun. The anticipation, the stories you would tell and the peppermint stick. My mother did all the work, the cleaning, the cooking, She was the shopping. always
0: doing, she always worked.
1: Nobody works. ever talked about me. Nobody ever had
0: a bad, <laughs> bad thing you could about never say.
1: She was, and she was always a busy bee. But dad, we'd all come around the kitchen table, and he'd take a great big, huge butcher knife and whack a piece. And my brother and I would always hope that our piece would be the bigger piece. We grew up happy, healthy, and satisfied. I'm going to say... It was the love that the people I knew put into their food, too, that made it special. And they cooked from the heart. It was not a job to them. They looked forward to doing it. Well, I enjoyed this talk, and food has made me what I am today.
0: So what are you going to make us for lunch, then?
1: (laughs) We are going to have fried potatoes from a leftover baked potato, and probably some tomato nocra. Oh, But the main thing is going to be onions and baked potato. Well, fried potatoes. I don't know. They won't look pretty.
0: In our last segment, we talked about the food that we have eaten growing up. And in this segment, we are going to hear from my mom, who has been a waitress in Florida for several decades. My mom... Is so impressive to me with her work ethic. She was a single mother while I was young, and she always worked. So much to say about her, but I think I'm just going to let her speak for herself. When did you start being a waitress?
2: When I was 25.
0: And where was the first place that you started to work?
2: It was called Maria's Kitchen. Tiny little family restaurant. It was fun. I was young. I liked it. I liked the quick cash, except the boss was really a bad man. Mean his mother. So
0: then what made you leave that restaurant?
2: Um, A guy had been trying to get me to work at his restaurant, and it, he gave me a good schedule, and I took a leap. And then I worked there for five years. It was an Italian place. I liked it there. I made a very good friend there, a sister friend. I went to work one day, and I didn't have a job because they didn't tell me. So then I got in my car, and I thought, well, I have to work. I'm a single mother. And uh, one of my friends was working at this restaurant, and I went and interviewed there. Oh, I did take a week off, and then I went first place I went, and they hired me. And I've been there ever since 23 years. So I get up at 5.30, and I am at work at quarter to seven.
0: Because you open the restaurant.
2: Yeah, I open the restaurant. We just changed hours. We opened at seven for 22 years.
0: And what time are you waking up then? 4.30. And you're a really good server. I mean, getting regular... Customers and people come in to visit you and yes. all of that. So you're really good. What do you think makes a good server?
2: Remembering a person's name means a lot to them. It really does. And I, I, I have tricks with myself, so I remember a person's name.
0: What is it like being a waitress?
2: It is mm, mostly good, but there's bad too in it. Rude customers, bosses don't care, bosses to sell the restaurants without telling you that you worked for for 19 years. Customers are ugly, 20% out of 100. And it just takes one rude customer to set your day like that. It seems like that's the day that everybody's going to be rude.
0: What are some of the weirder things people have asked And their orders
2: people can like the weirdest just the way people order breakfast they just want their eggs with no brown on them I don't want I don't want my toast dark but I want it cooked.
0: but you're not the one cooking it though so
2: just taking the order
0: and do the chefs and the cooks respond well to those kind of orders
2: no it's all they act like we're I'm eating it they give me a hard time personally like I'm eating it I really don't have to take any of it home with me. Any of the problems at work or customers, I try to leave it right there. I have made many very, very good friends, very good customers have been angels. I have run into a lot of generous people. Generous to my boys, generous to me.
0: Because you are able to form bonds with people because you see them
2: often. Regularly, yes. We have regular customers that I see every day but a lot of them are dying off and we're getting new customers and with the COVID they're not coming out and they shouldn't I'm glad they're not coming out but I miss them
0: being a waitress is physical work I don't think maybe some people don't understand how physical that it actually is
2: yes it is very physical lifting the plates stacking them on your arm using a tray the way you serve with your hands and of course when you're younger You don't ever worry about any of that. But now that I'm 58, I feel it. I've had to have back surgery. I've fallen. I've busted my head. I went down on my knee, which I had to have knee surgery. So yes, very physical. Bad on your body. But it's kind of good that I move around a lot, too, because I don't know now, at my age, what to do with myself as far as job goes, because I need to move around. I can't sit.
0: So when COVID came, your boss shut down the restaurant for 6 weeks and what was your experience like trying to apply for unemployment in Florida
2: The most frustrating. I spent two weeks in a row, at least 40 hours a week. And you would get almost there and they kick you off and you'd have to start all over. It was just the worst. Like you're just hitting your head against the wall. That was really hard. And then it took time to get it once I finally got my paperwork through. And you know, then then they tell us stay home. And Then you get used to staying at home. Then all of a sudden after six weeks, it's like we're opening back up. Even though the pandemic's still there, you know, you got to go to work. I think we opened too soon. I think we should have waited a little couple more weeks, possibly, even.
0: Because not that many people were coming in.
2: Not that many people were coming in.
0: You weren't getting your full-time hours because of
2: it. I'm still not getting my hours from my full-time work. Or um, the money is very bad now, too. The lack of people coming in.
0: And the way serving works is you get paid... How, how much is it per hour? $5. Because of the tip out? Yes. Yeah. So if you're not getting the tips, then you're getting...
2: $5 an hour. There's been several days that I haven't... I've made shockingly low money, never in my entire working.
0: He was one of the first people, right when they could open back up, he went right was, back up.
2: Yes. It was tough. I didn't think it was time, but then they're saying, you know, it's time, it's time. You got to listen to what people... Well, especially when you work like I do. I didn't have any any break. I had to go back to work. And it was just like, you know, my boss wasn't letting us know what was going to, on during that time. And if he was even going to be able to open up back the restaurant back up. But then he got part of the CARES package. And so we learned like Friday before we went back to work on me Tuesday. And
0: so now that you, how do you feel now wearing a a mask and all of that at work? Cause you said there was no air conditioning this week.
2: Yeah. The air has been, it's been broken and just so hot and just really, I, I don't mind wearing a mask. You come in contact with people, but it's just hard to get used to moving around, trying to breathe and sweating, perspiring, glistening. Now everyone is say it.
0: <laughs> well, I know how hard you work and it's a really tough job being a server I'm concerned for you being having to be at work, and but I'm glad that you're taking precautions. And unfortunately, you, you have to do what you have to do when it comes to work and everything.
2: Right. I do. If anybody could help me figure out what to do for another job, I'd really appreciate it because my body is wearing out. Every day I say, I don't know how much longer I can do this.
0: And I think that's something that you were saying earlier is you've been a server for a long time now and it can be hard to think of doing another job. Right. But there are jobs out there. We just have to figure one out.
2: That's right. That's it. That helps it out. me move around. Yes. That's not fit.
0: In the last segment, we heard from my mom and her story about being a waitress and what it's looking like for her during COVID. And now we are going to chat with Janet Keeler about what she's been eating in quarantine, major food stories that are on her radar, and we're going to be talking about her cookbook.
1: I love cookbooks. I love to get a cookbook. To me, that's one of my biggest entertainments. And I love to watch cooking shows, but then I make them my own after making them their way one time
3: i was saying to my husband the other day i don't think our pantry has been so low because i've been cooking so much more since we're home all the time i'm like oh here's a can of beans here's the thing that you know i thought god i had a lot of stuff in that pantry that was like not being used so i'm i feel a little bit more resourceful i guess is forcing me to be more resourceful
0: what kind of stuff have you been cooking recently
3: you know it's so funny to think about like my mother who didn't really like to cook, but that was she was a stay-at-home mom and that's what she did. I mean, I can we maybe went out a couple times a year, like if it was someone's birthday or something like that. So she cooked every night and we always had some sort of meat, a vegetable, and a salad. You know, she had these chubby kids, so we didn't get a lot of mashed potatoes or anything like that. Or if it was mashed potatoes, it was really, if it was mashed potatoes, it was really turnips or something awful like that. I always in my mind, even still we can't, if it's not three things, it's not really dinner, which is so weird. You know, that idea, it has to be three things. So I've been making a lot of stuff like that, baked chicken, a vegetable and salad, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm trying right now, I have been doing a thing on my Instagram where I'm making recipes from cookbooks written right now by African American authors. There's actually a hashtag out there called Black Chefs Matter. I've been trying to like make recipes. I think I've like maybe four of them just kind of drawing attention, and I'm waiting for someone to say, how come you're not sharing the recipes? And then I'm going to say, because I want you to buy their cookbook. Mm. Get <laughs> out there and buy cookbooks. I've been making uh, more fish than I usually do, a lot of shrimp. I've been on this hummus kick. I've been making a lot of Hummus. I'm um, trying not to do a ton of
0: carbs. Now. So you didn't make any homemade bread when people were doing the sourdough? Oh, start?
3: I actually, you know what I was like, I, I made it several times. I made bagels when I could find yeast and I was panicked cause I couldn't find yeast. So now we have so much yeast in here and I kind <laughs> of, over- you know, bagels. I did that about three times and I thought, okay, that's good. I haven't done sourdough though. I mean, cause then I just eat it all.
0: Fresh bread is just the best. I think
3: it totally, totally. But then it's gone, right? Like in a day my my son lives down with his girlfriend down in a Lakewood Ranch. And I a couple sat- Saturdays early on, I made stuff and we went down there with masks on and handed it to him through the car window. And, uh, you know, my sister in California was like going, you guys are careful. And I go, well, she's still going to work because she has to work. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to get sick. So yeah. I have given some stuff to them, but we just, I just don't have that many people to give stuff to. And so
0: We were talking about cookbooks earlier, and I know that you have a book. What was Mm -hmm. that process like for choosing the recipes?
3: So that was a cookie book, and that that grew out of a project that we did at the Tampa Bay Times for, oh, at that point had been going on about 10 years. We had a Christmas cookie issue every year, and readers would, we put a call out in like in August, and readers would send in their favorite recipes. So we would pick uh, maybe 30 of them to test, and we'd run a couple dozen in the paper. So the cookbook was really a collection of those recipes, and I added more to it. So that's what that was about. And it was, um, it was a really fun process, but it took a long time. I mean, most of the recipes had already all been tested because we tested them for the paper. And I gave the people credit, you know, where we got the recipes, even though I knew some of them were like all over the internet, they weren't really their original recipes. And that's okay. I mean, people understand that. So I did go through every recipe I think there was 50 of them in there, 150, and wrote what they call head notes. So I wrote something about each, each recipe, just a little bit of like a tip or something like that. And that took quite a long time to do. But they say, like, if you're going to write a cookbook, you better be in love with the topic because it's going to take a couple years. Wow. You know, by the time it's tested and edited and, you know, produced and everything, it takes a while.
1: I didn't realize you did that because I look forward to that every year and seeing it so in the paper because there were in really the- some uh, basics, but then there were some you had never thought to put those ingredients Together, so I was a fan.
3: Good, I'm glad to hear that. I, you know, I sp- we specifically looked for recipes that you couldn't find anywhere. Yes, I mean, you could, but it was like I wasn't going to run snickerdoodles or, you know, something like that, or just a plain peanut butter cookie because that's so you know it's everywhere.
1: But I always like uh, the dried fruit ones.
3: You know what? I like those too, but I wouldn't think I would. We were like we were like this cookie tastes better than it should with the dried
1: cherries. Yes. In it. It's delicious. I guess because it was concentrated sweet. Javette. You know,
3: it's funny how that how that whole. Thing that whole project started my very first year that I was the food editor was 2000. And around the fall of that year, I got a call, maybe it was closer to Christmas, actually in November, I got a call from a guy, an older man whose wife had, had died. And she'd been gone a few years and they had made a cookie together called Christmas rocks, which were just really like little fruitcakes. They had all those dried fruits and nuts and stuff. In oh, cinnamon the best. And he couldn't bring himself to make them for the several years after she died because it was just it was just too sad for him. So he decided that he was going to he was going to do it this year. And he had a question for me. This was in the days where we used to get a lot of phone calls from readers, so, you know, and the Internet came along they went there to get their questions answered. But you know, for a long time, we were always settling, you know, bar bets in the middle of the night and stuff too. But um, <laughs> he wanted to know something about cookie sheets. What kind of cookie sheets should he make? But we, we kept talking about this, you know, he was gonna finally do it by himself. And then he was sort of crying on the phone and then I was crying. I mean, it was a really, really beautiful conversation. And I gave him whatever information he had. And a few weeks later, I got a package in the mail. And it was, it was like one of those, the box that you get your checks in when you, the checks used to come in that box, the, yes. you know, with the yes. that size. It was that size. And I think it was one of those boxes. And I, I shook it and I saw his name on the um, return address. And I thought, my, he sent me some cookies, Aww. like six or seven of them in this little box. It was so sweet, and it was just at that point, I kind of knew this somewhere, I guess, but it really hit home that the cookies were just more than sugar flour eggs to people. Right. They meant so much more, and you know, right. you, we know that from things like Christmas cookies and things, how special they are to people. That's when that project started. It was him that that started that, and uh, on that, we would talk every now and then over the next years, couple of years, because he would have a question about some casserole or something, and then I didn't hear from him anymore, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, because he was an older guy, and he had died. But when we did the cookbook, I tracked down his daughter or something in Tennessee to make sure she got a copy of it. He was the start of that whole tradition at the times. So he was so sweet, though. That was, but I, you know, I remember my colleague that was sitting. We, you know, we sat in pods, so we were always real close together. She kept looking at me like, "Are you crying?" What's going on we're fine? We're just having a good cry here over these cookies. Because <laughs> it was really sweet and it was it was very emotional for him.
1: I'm a chocolate. So my favorites were chocolate chip cookies and M M&M and M cookies. And then my friend gave me this recipe for fruitcake cookies. Now I love fruitcakes, but I didn't know how that would translate into a cookie. I mean, yeah. they're better than anything with chocolate in it, because it's just so unique and Very rich, and uh, there's a lot of people in this world that don't uh, doesn't care for uh, fruitcake. They will say it's dry. I said, "Well, you then you dip it in uh, your coffee."
0: She loves fruitcake. I think we still have some in. I have some in the refrigerator. (laughs) I may have a
1: piece later. They just last forever, I think, right? Yeah, they do, (laughs) which is kind of (laughs) scary.
0: We were talking a lot about Florida food because, you know, that's what she grew up with and what I grew up with. But I'm wondering, for someone who's never been to Florida, how would you describe Florida food or what is Florida food to you?
3: Well, it's interesting because the state is so varied. I mean, you could say Florida food is, you know, black beans and rice and, you know, Cuban food from South Florida for sure. And with that Hispanic uh, bent to it, I guess I think of Florida food as a lot of citrus and more light kinds of things, even though like you mentioned that, you know, that chess pie is kind of heavy, but I do think of it as, as more light. I certainly think of it as a lot of seafood because they're just surrounded by water. So I know friends that I have, like in Michigan, they love to come down here because of the seafood. And we're always like, well, we can't get any good seafood. But when you're from Michigan, you're getting lake perch and all kinds of frozen stuff, you know. Mm. So I think for sure seafood... There's a really strong melding of flavors here, too, because you get like that North Florida, very Southern kind of stuff, grits, you know, greens, those kinds of things. But I think down here, we don't, I don't feel that as much here, the strength of that. So it seems like there's a, just a, a big melting pot in a lot of ways. Good words. Yeah. Melting pot.
0: Talking about food, talking about melting, talking about pots.
1: Yeah. I would call the food that I was raised on rustic, which is a mm-hmm. nice, for simple. I know one of the things Tyler likes that my Aunt Mary used to make all the time, I'm sure it came because it was left, she had this and she had that, and she didn't have much else or something, and we call it a cracker salad, and it's cut up uh, tomatoes, bite size, and at the last minute, you uh, crumble with your hand, some saltine crackers, and you add mayonnaise. I always say my mother could take a can of corned beef and make a banquet out of it with delicious onion gravy, brown onion gravy and rice. Or if, you know, she had extra time, she always worked mashed potatoes. And I mean, we just we would look forward to canned corned beef was her stretcher. Make the food go further for the whole month because my daddy got paid once a month. And uh, we always look forward to the stretching dinners. We never knew we were poor. I figured it out because we had credit down at the local grocery store. You know, we were clean and we ate good. And back then we ate legumes a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: when I joined Weight Watchers many decades later, I found out they were very, very good for you. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of swamp cabbage? I have heard of it, but I haven't had it. Well, what I'm referring to, you get it more in North Florida. They make a salad out of it, and uh, I've had it for years. And the ones I've had have sherbet and peanuts in it on top of a big leaf of the cabbage and a bunch of shredded plump cabbage on top. And uh, I would call the food I ate here in Pinellas County, instead of calling it simple, I'd call it rustic. Connotation is a little bit better. <laughs>
3: interesting that you know you're right about that about words how we kind of you know say oh it's cracker it's poor people food and then rustic does you know i would say too that is kind of typical of florida food i don't think of it as i don't think of it as fancy you know like sauces or french or something it's interesting the state is so geographically spread so if you look at like from where we are south the growing season is upside down here compared to the north i mean we're not growing tomatoes in august here the way they are in new jersey and you know northern places or zucchinis or stuff like that so I think when when so many people have migrated down here that's been difficult for them to get used to I used to get calls you know in the middle of the summer from uh, readers who would be well, I can't go to find any good tomatoes go, like well, oh it's not tomato season here mm-hmm. what do you mean like well, you're not in New Jersey anymore it's not tomato season it's mango season if you want some tropical fruit that's August you know July and August but it's not you, tomatoes that's February, January, you know, March when Plant City comes in. So I think that's been kind of hard for some people to get used to too. And I think with Southern cooking, which is more typical in North Florida, I would say more classic Southern cooking, that's very much dependent on what's in the garden. Lots of fresh stuff. People grow things in their gardens. Here we're a little different. We have maybe an orange tree or avocado trees. You don't see You know, there are gardens, but it's a little different here. A lot of greens.
0: Reminds me of a story that a student worked on about the mangoes in St. Pete, about how when development happened, it really changed a lot of what people were eating.
3: Yeah, in in Midtown. I think she did that story on sort of the last mango trees or something in Midtown. But yeah, it really changed a lot because there was, uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that, but I noticed in Midtown St. Pete, there are a lot of restaurants that sell crab and crab in general, in my mind, is kind of an expensive food. You know, if you go to the grocery store and you get that little container of lump crab, it's like 14 bucks. Crab's kind of expensive, but then I realized, you know, seafood is free food. You know, if you've got, if you've got a, you know, if you've got a fishing pole or, you know, you see people at bridges, I mean, that's free, that's free food. And so for a lot of people that have a lot of money, crabbing so I think there's a tradition in that, in the African-American community, especially in Midtown of seafood, because it could be, you could, you could eat pretty good if you knew how to fish. So there's fewer places to do that now. So it's an interest, different time for sure.
0: The seafood and the neighborhood made me think about what you enjoy. We're talking in your podcast episode and she said something like, this is what we ate This, and I thought everybody ate this, right? So it's like Florida food seems to be about what you were eating when you were younger as a kid that's any kind of food right and so now we kind of have these debates about well what is and what is not florida food
3: yeah yeah i i think it has it, it's strong here because we're such a state of uh transience so many people have come here from other places and that's what built it i mean you know from where we are probably south for years and years there were no people because there was no air conditioning you know once air conditioning came and that sort of changed Florida big time because people would come. but they would come from up north even for the winter like they do now, but people with money would bring their cooks with them. So they were still eating that same old stuff that they were eating up north. Yeah, I think it's a different I think you're right. I think you're right with what you ate as a kid. And so if you are a, a you know a Cuban family that grew up in South Florida, you're going to have a different idea of what food is, what Florida food is, I think. I mean, I always thought when I came here, when I first came here, when I first came here was in the 80s to visit a friend who was working in Cocoa Beach. And I lived in California. Then I came to visit and I had my first Cuban sandwich. And I thought, wow, this is something else. I mean, it was so good. It was like the pressed one. It was so good. So I always think of that as Florida food to me. Cuban yeah. sandwiches, and I would say most Floridians know the Cuban sandwich. I know it's it's spread throughout the country, but to me, it seems very, you know, Floridian. And then you get here and you find out well, it was maybe invented in Ybor City, or maybe it was Miami, that it wasn't totally Cuban because it's it's a mixture of of Cuban things, but also Spanish. So it's and it's interesting, but it's such a mishmash of food here.
0: And people will definitely debate about that where the Cuban sandwich started (laughs) huge point of pride for people
3: that very much is a point of pride yeah for sure but i even now if i go somewhere and i see it on a menu and i look at it and it says tomatoes and mayonnaise i'm always like that's not a real cuban no cuban sandwich has tomatoes and mayonnaise on it so
0: so where's your favorite cuban from then an insider's tip
3: i'm a big fan of the cuban that's at the at bodega on central avenue in saint petersburg i think that's a really good one my thing with the Cuban is, I don't like a lot of meat on it. I mean, I'm a meat eater. I don't have a problem with that, but I don't like them when they get really thick because it's, you know, here anyway. The Ybor Cuban has so roast pork, salami, and I guess just like kind of ham on it. Just, you know, so if that gets too thick, to me, it's too salty and too much. I, I, don't, I don't want that much on there. There's this nice and flat, and they press it really good. So I think they have a great one. I think they have a really good one. there. That couple that owns that just opened a restaurant down the street called Baba, which is Mediterranean, and that's really yummy too. They have a good they have a good touch on things. But I like that one. I like their. But so that's my theory. I want them pretty flat when they're pressed. I don't want a big thick old thing with all that meat in there. And then the the Miami uh, Cubans they don't have salami. They think that's ridiculous. So what do you, that's the Italian. That's kind of the Italian Spanish thing. That's Ybor City. So. If you get a Cuban at Columbia, it's very yes, thin.
1: It's, it's very thin. It's <laughs> yeah. just ham and cheese and pork and mustard. Mm-hmm. And and the, one, I think they concentrate one. more on the bread because the bread is delicious. No, you're right. The uh, bread is everything. It's awesome. right, that Cuban bread It's yeah. delicious. Right. Uh, right, But I have some. Uh, a place I used to uh, work. They all swore by the uh, Cuban sandwiches at Publix.
3: You know, I have to say, I bought a couple of Cubans there that were in there kind of grab and go. So I told Scott, I'm going to press them myself.
2: Mm -hmm. So
3: I opened it up when I got it home because I'm like, well, where's the mustard? So I put some mustard in it and I put an extra piece of Swiss cheese, which, you know, isn't very Cuban, but they have Swiss cheese in them. So that's another, the Cuban is kind of a mixture of all kinds of things. And I pressed it and it was pretty good.
0: Publix does have some good sandwiches. I have to have to give them credit there sometimes. I wanted to ask you for folks that may not know all that food writing entails, what does food writing encompass? Well, to
3: me, it's that when you talk about like, you know, PR or something of food writing, I think most people look at it right away as it's about recipes and it's about cookbooks or it's about cooking. I look at it more as really writing about one the way we live but also the intersection of politics and health and the economy and culture and all that kind of stuff. In my food writing class I really we look we look at what I call a reported food story meaning it's it has to do with food but it also has to do with with news. What's going on in the world and that kind of thing. The Associated Press won a Pulitzer a few years back for a series of stories they did they found that people that were harvesting shrimp in Southeast Asia were being kept in cages. And, um, you know, that seafood that they were harvesting basically as enslaved people was winding up on our, on our dinner tables here in the United oh. States. So to me, that's a food story. That's mm-hmm. an, you know, it's not your classic, Oh, Christmas cookies or anything like that, but it's important, important information. So I look at it. It's really, I think it's a really broad topic. So I think that, that, you know, it can be extremely serious, I mean, because think of it, there's not much more intimate out there than what we put in our bodies that we eat. When you think about, you know, the FDA and the regulations and who's like the, you know, people in the in the fields, there was a lot of stories after Trump was first elected and the immigration, the anti-immigration talk of of farmers in, in all over the country that were leaving food in the fields because so many immigrants and so many farm workers were afraid to even if they even if they were in the United States legally and they had the proper documentation or the legal documentation they were really afraid to show up at work because they would get snared in one of these roundups or something so they weren't going so food was like going to waste i mean that was a that to me that's a food story mm-hmm. so i look at it that way. i think it's a really broad spectrum and people find their place in different places i would say my lane when i was at the when i was at the Tampa Bay times i did a lot of home cooking stories I don't have any professional cooking training. Yeah, I've taken cooking classes here and there, but I have no degree or, you know, certification in anything. So I was, my, my lane was really home cooking. I did a lot of stuff on home cooking, and I like very much to write about when things went wrong in my kitchen. Because <laughs> I thought there was just too much writing about, hey, look, it's a beautiful cake you can make, and look at all these things, and then I would try it, and I thought, I, you know, I'm like you. I can't do this. This is crazy. So that was kind of where I, I came down in teaching food writing and it we really look at a lot of different kinds of writing.
0: Um you were talking about the shrimp and the food chain mm-hmm. and how it and it made me think of I spent some time with some cattle ranchers to talk about how that their industry has changed and one of the cowboys told me a story of people who drove onto the property wanting to buy a cow to kill it there and have the meat because they wanted to know where their meat was coming from. They wanted to see it being killed
3: and what did he say
0: he said that's not how that works i can't just chop up a cow right here
3: right because they don't have a slaughterhouse the meat gets the cows get shipped somewhere and there's fewer and fewer slaughterhouses in the united states and which is like if they get hit one of which they have been hit by this virus and people can't work it kind of shuts things down remember there was that panic that we were going to not be able to get bacon there for a while. That's fascinating. So that goes back to that idea of people don't really understand that where their food comes from, how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, when people say, I don't want to buy fruit from, you know, Mexico anymore. And you're like, well, okay, then you're not getting a lot of fruit. I mean, if you start looking at those little labels, we want cheap food. And that's what's happened. That's what's happened. You know, if we really had to pay the price of things, like it's interesting to me, everything you look at, almost everything you have, the label says made in China, made in Vietnam, made in, you know, clothes and things like that. And people think that's so terrible. And I'm like, okay, well then are you paying $30 for that t-shirt or do you want to pay 10? You want to pay 10. That's what's happened. So that's fascinating though, that someone came onto the property and said, buy that cow, can you fix it up for us?
0: (laughs) And the way he told the story, it was, it was, so, you know, engrossing, but it made them think about changing their business model because I think, you know, farm to table became a really popular thing. It's, I guess, mm-hmm. still pretty popular. So they actually then started keeping the cows in Florida because they had to ship them to feed yards, i to say. But so they they invested in a feed yard in Florida and they kept the cows in the state because people wanted locally sourced food. So their agricultural model changed a little to meet the demand of how people's food habits have changed.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting.
0: And these are like 70-year-old, you know, cowboys.
3: Yeah. And they know the business so intimately,
1: it was probably shocking in a way to have someone come and ask that. See, people used to eat cattle from their backyard. And mom and dad would go up to North Florida, had cousins and a sister, and this, that, and the other, and they'd come home with fresh meat. Wow, wow. And, and that would do us maybe six months and so forth. But you don't do that anymore. And if right. you did, it would probably cost you three times as much. People don't
3: want to pay for stuff like that sometimes, I think. when My, my mother grew up in a, on a farm in South uh, Utah. Oh, and wow. she absolutely hated it. She wanted to get that off that farm as, as soon as she can. And it was a, what they what like a self subsistence farm. My grandfather grew, grew sugar beets, and they never had any money. And again, it's like kind of like what you were saying. She didn't have any idea they were so poor until yeah. like years later because they always had food. You know, I think when you grew up in a rural yes. area, you grew stuff, so you had food, so you didn't go without that way. But she used to say on Sundays, my grandmother would say, you know, Peter, will you go? um, We want to have chicken on Sunday dinner. So will you go get a chicken? And he'd have to kill it and do all the stuff for dinner. And he hated to kill anything. He was a very gentle guy, and he really didn't want to do that. He used to always say, oh, couldn't we have something else tonight? (laughs) He'd be like, no, it's Sunday. We're having a chicken. But he'd have to go out and kill it. So, I mean, can you imagine, like that probably tasted great, <laughs> you know, and well, they, knew, they, they knew what it was eating and it was right outside the door. And, you know, and now so many people, well, I, I think the, the fad has slightly faded of the backyard chickens. Mm-hmm. I remember like a few years ago, everybody was getting chickens and chickens. And I kept thinking, we, we know, have chickens we... next door. Well, you know, I don't think people realize that they eventually they're just like ladies. They don't have eggs anymore. They run their course, and then on a real farm, they eat them. Then they don't just keep them as pets, you know. And it was, you know, I don't think people quite realize that that there's a life cycle for these, you know, right.
1: laying. What <laughs> <My laughs> I was talking about, my mother, who didn't have a mean bone in her body, and she'd go out and wring a chicken's neck and come in and then chop it off, and I mean, chop yeah. it off outside and pluck All it. The and- yeah, and the whole thing. You smelled these burnt feathers and, oh, wow. you know, while it was boiling. But my mother would go like this, like a lasso over her head. My mother, who never said, you know, damn. And no, she didn't say damn or hell. She would say shit. And that would Ooh. be when she hurt herself. And, <laughs> and my kids used to just, the biggest thing in their life was to get her aggravated on Sunday morning when they spent the night with her and she was trying to get them a big breakfast and get off to Sunday school and church. And if they could make her say the word, you know, that they had made their whole weekend that they spent with And so, but she would wring a chicken's neck. I don't think I could do that.
3: I have no idea how you do that. I would have no idea. That's how, you know, and you think I'm just like a generation removed from somebody who knew how to do that. And I, I don't think I have a clue.
1: to do that no
0: and granny was doing that when she was like a teenager too you know
1: yeah her mother died when she was a young 16 she had three brothers and a dad plus she knew how to do all that before her mother died
3: well and there's probably not only do you know where your food comes from but you understand kind of I don't know if this is the right word, but like this, the sacrifice or in a way, right? That, you know, the animals were raised and, you know, they're feeding you and you kind of understand that life cycle.
1: I think there was, you know, you did not name the chickens. You did not, not name, you know, the cows were not named or anything right. like that because they were food.
0: And so I know you've been covering Florida food for a while what are some Florida food stories that you're really interested in or that you think maybe more people should know about?
3: Well, the one I'm most fascinated with, I would say, is the story of the mango in South Florida. So Florida doesn't have any commercial mango groves anymore. There were many here at some time, but, you know, Hurricane Andrew, what, in 92, sort of wiped them out. And they didn't really come back because there was so much competition from Mexico and some other places that it was kind of dwindling anyway. But there's a place in Coral Gables called the Fairchild Tropical Garden and they have the world's foremost authorities on mangoes there. And they propagate a lot of mangoes and they study mangoes around the world. They have actually propagated a lot of kinds there and, and have created these hybrids. So there's a lot of mangoes. Like if you think of like the famous mangoes uh, or Tommy Atkins, the Hayden mango, they're all named after people that lived in South Florida. So there's wow. this really strong connection. There's wow. like one Dot. There's one called the Fairchild, which is named after David Fairchild, who went around that was kind of a fruit and spice hunter that went around the world. And they're all named after people that lived in South Florida. I think that's an amazing story. And now they've gone like the Tommy, uh, the Tommy Atkins, I think is, is the most widely grown commercial mango in the world, mostly in Mexico, but it's named after a guy who is from Miami. Wow. I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. I don't think people know the history so much of the mango thousands of varieties of them. And we go every year, though not this year, because unfortunately it was canceled. There's a, a international mango festival at this tropical garden in July. And we always go there. And there's just people, because Miami is such, a, such an international city, there's people there from all around the world looking for their, you know, looking for their special mangoes from their countries and stuff. So it's fascinating. That's a really interesting Florida story to me that has some just strange twists and turns.
0: I know, the Mango Festival, I want to go there. That sounds fantastic.
3: So much fun, so much fun. <laughs> that that tropical, uh, Fairchild Tropical Garden, or yeah, tr- Tropical Botanic Garden is also a science center. So they're doing a lot of work, on, you know, scientific work on tropical fruits and stuff. So it's not just like, oh, look at the pretty stuff kind of place. It's, a, it's pretty, and they have a lot of scientists there. It's an interesting place. I love that. I will be interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see orlando how orlando might change of course there's a lot of interesting things with orlando right now with the theme parks you know shutting down and all the jobs that have been lost there but they also had a big influx of, of people from puerto rico after hurricane maria so i'll be int- and they, they they already had a pretty healthy puerto rican population there so i'll be interested to see like how many more restaurants kind of pop up with that cuisine how that might change things there that'll be
0: interesting and then I know with COVID, I, I saw a headline about migrant workers and everything. There's um, a lot of concern about folks getting COVID when they're working the fields and stuff like that.
3: There's a lot of people, immigrants especially, uh, you know, started out mostly Mexicans, but a lot from other from other places now that are working our, in our fields and getting food to food to our table and not living in the best conditions and about having healthcare and stuff. And that kind of goes back to you know healthcare in this country and how we don't look out for people as much as we should with all that we have help people. So I I agree. I think that's a really scary thing. And I think COVID has definitely, I mean, it's been there for a while. And I think people who are paying attention know that, but it's really, it's really laid bare some inequities when you see in what populations it's really affecting and people that, you know, don't have money because like some of us that are working at home, well, yay for us. We're lucky enough, fortunate enough kind of jobs we can work at home. There's plenty of people. Like you were saying, your mom working in the restaurant, you can't do that at home or you're you know, working at Publix or something, you can't do that at home. There's a lot of people that are in that situation that don't have the luxury of working at home. So we have to remember that. Not you're sure a very
1: happening. interesting person. Well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> and you're into, you're, you're into so many different things. You have a great big aspect on life. So oh,
2: great.
1: And I usually do a lot of the talking. And then I get edited out.
0: But, but. Not all the way out. Just, you know, got to keep it moving. Well,
3: it was nice seeing you guys.
0: Bye. We'll talk soon. Thank you.
3: Okay. Keep in touch. Thank you. Look forward to it. You're
1: a delight.
0: All right. So that was our episode. <laughs> we talked about food. Which is our favorite.
1: Don't you just love it?
0: Don't you just love it? We hope that you get to cooking or eating or whatever brings you comfort. And if you have any recipes or any stories that you want to send us, you can email it to us at thing at gmail.com. Subscribe to the pod. We also have a newsletter. We hope that you have a happy and satisfied day. And we hope that it's sunny.
1: Or rainy. We need the rain.